Now, I feel like we need to warm up. You know, you don't just jump into a, a marathon with uh, cold legs. You don't also start, you know, running your engine at, at full revving without warming up that engine beforehand, tuning it up a bit. We have spent some time outside of the book of Matthew to do a topical series on the signs of a healthy Christian, and today we're going back to the book of Matthew, which indeed is a marathon. The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is a long gospel. And so I think we need to warm up. We need to get our minds back into the gospel of Matthew. We need to be reminded of where we've been and what we're going back to. Uh, And then some of you have by God's grace, joined us during the topical series, and maybe you have no familiarity with where we've been in Matthew. So this will serve as a reminder to a lot of us and even catch some of you up who are new. Um, So I'd like to do a brief review before we get into our passage today. What do you need to know? What do we need to know and be reminded of in the book of Matthew? Write this sentence down if you're taking notes. It's very simple. Jesus is king. Write that down. That's the theme of the book of Matthew. Jesus is king. And we've been following that theme from the beginning. Now, the royal lineage of Christ goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of Israel. It goes through Judah, which is the tribe of the royal scepter, and through David who was the recipient of the royal covenant. Jesus' lineage checks out. Okay, He is king. Jesus was born of a virgin, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, and theologically is the only way that God can become a man and avoid the curse of the original sin. And so there we have another check. He has a herald, uh, a forerunner, that proclaims his arrival, that proclaims the gospel that he will proclaim, and that forerunner is John the Baptist. He is anointed from heaven in his baptism. God the Father and the Spirit show up at the Lord Jesus' baptism, and we see this spiritual anointing, if you will, preparing Jesus for ministry. And then Jesus, the King, he passes the test of the evil one. He passes the temptation test in the wilderness the test of Satan. Check, check, check. So far, he checks out. He is the king. And then he starts to preach. And when Jesus preaches, people listen. He's a phenomenal preacher and starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He starts his Sermon on the Mount with this declaration, blessed are. See, Jesus proclaims those who are truly happy, those who are thriving, Those who are spiritually fulfilled, they are the citizens of His kingdom. And how would we describe these citizens? Well, they're poor in spirit. They're meek, gentle. They are peacemakers. And so on and so forth. They have the character of godliness. And His citizens are not going to, you know, be well respected by the world. In fact, the world's going to persecute them. Jesus promises that they will persecute His kingdom citizens because they persecute Him in His name, but they'll also be salt and light to the glory of God in the midst of this crooked generation. 
And then Jesus goes on to start talking about how one enters his kingdom. How, how, what are the salvation descriptions of these people? And he says this, you've got to do better than the Pharisees. The religion of my kingdom, the faith of my kingdom is a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the best of the best. They kept the law of God perfectly, almost perfectly, but they didn't keep it from the heart. And Jesus exposes that His righteousness comes from the heart. It's an alien righteousness. It's one that we can't produce within ourselves, but it comes from outside of us. You need a sincere faith, one that's not like the hypocrites who look good on the outside but are far from God on the inside, but one that truly does all these good works, fasting, giving, and praying to God in secret for the glory of God and for the pleasure of God. It's a sincere faith. And you need a heavenly treasure, not an earthly one. The heavenly treasures, or sorry, the earthly treasures will cause your heart to succumb to idolatry and you cannot serve two masters. Jesus makes that plain. And then finally, he says, you need to enter the narrow gate. You need to walk the narrow way. You need to be a tree that bears good fruit. Not a tree that's barren because that tree will be cut off. You need to build your house on the enduring rock of the word. Don't be like the fool who builds his house on the sand. Jesus then at the end of his sermon delineates one way of salvation. One way that you can have eternal life. He ends his sermon and he drops the mic. And then this is what people say at the end of his sermon. Look at Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. If you like to mark your Bibles, I'd encourage you to underline that word authority. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus wasn't simply a good scholar. Jesus didn't write, just write an excellent commentary. Jesus preached the word as if he wrote it, because he did. He preaches God's word with authority and power. The king has power in his words. And now today, we're going to transition to his actions His words have power. Do His actions have power? Will this display of power continue? Does the King have authority over nature? Over sickness? Over sin? Does He even have authority and power over death? Well, that remains to be seen. And that's what we're going to follow as we continue in the book of Matthew. We want to see displays of the King's authority. And so we're going to follow in this next account, this next chapter, three healings. Three healings that display the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're warmed up. I want us to read Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. It says this, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, 
saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers underneath me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Three accounts of healing. You need to know that uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, he organizes his gospels thematically. Not all the time chronologically. So some of these events are a little bit out of order. But Matthew organizes these events together because they're all communicating something that is similar. And that is that the king has power over sickness. The king has power over sickness. All three of these accounts emphasize that. Now, this morning I don't think we're going to get through all three. In fact, I think we're just going to touch one. And so keep your outlines for next week. We'll come back to these other two if we don't get to them. Do you know what nosophobia is or nosophobia? It's the persistent fear of getting sick. The persistent fear of getting sick. Now, WebMD states that this is an extremely rare condition. I don't know about that. Maybe that was penned before 2020. I think it's a little more prevalent today. But um, really, I, I mean, the... The topic of sickness, obviously, for some of you, might send up the political antennas, and you have an opinion, right? Because all of you are professional doctors now. Um, but I'd like you to set that opinion for aside for a minute, and let's just state some facts about sickness, shall we? First of all, sickness is inevitable. Sickness is inevitable. Sickness affects and touches all of us. You know, from a simple skin rash to... The flu, from small matters that can be dealt with pretty easily to matters like cancer or heart disease. No matter where you are on the health scale, 
Every single one of you in this room would admit sickness has affected me. I have been sick, okay? Whether, whether it's a common cold, a flu, uh, what, an infection, an irritation, sickness is inevitable. Everybody gets sick. It's an unavoidable hurdle in the human life. doesn't matter if you make over six figures a year or if you barely touch half of you know, six figures in your income, you'll get sick. Touches everybody. No matter where you're at in social classes or on the economic scale. That's the first thing. Sickness is inevitable. Secondly, sickness is destructive and it's deadly. Now, some sicknesses are more destructive and deadly than others, but ultimately, sickness leads to death. Now, medicine and technology have come a long way. And so some of the illnesses that people saw in the first century, i.e. leprosy, the one we're going to talk about today, we don't deal with anymore. We, technology has advanced, medicine has improved, and, and those are no longer life-threatening diseases. But as far as we've come, last I checked, people still die from cancer. People still die from heart disease. People still die even from the flu. We have not cured sickness. It's destructive and deadly. The third thing, fact about sickness, is that sickness, and this is really important theologically, sickness is a consequence of sin. Sickness is a consequence of sin. It is. It's not always a result of personal sin. Because you're sick doesn't mean that your own personal sin got you there. It could have. But it is always a consequence of the original sin. And the original sin was the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And that original sin has consequences. And, and one of the consequences, or, or a couple of the consequences for eating that fruit, for rebelling against God's authority, was pain and death. So all the pain that we experience... The devastation, destruction, and even the death that sickness leads us to is a result of sin. Sickness is a consequence of sin. And so sickness, illness, for us, the human race, is actually a really good reminder. It's a reminder of our fallen condition. When you get sick... I would encourage you to think past just the momentary affliction or the pain or the nausea that your sickness is producing and think theologically about it. This sickness is a reminder for me that I am a fallen human being, that I am sick with sin, which is a bigger problem than the external symptoms of sickness, and that we all, as the human race, we have a big problem that needs to be dealt with. We all need a Savior. A simple cold or a flu should get you to think about these realities because they're true. Sickness is a result of sin. So ironically, it's a healthy reminder of our fallen condition and our sin nature. We are all weak. We are all broken. We are all ultimately powerless over sickness. And we need salvation. We need a powerful Savior to not only deal with the symptoms, but to deal with the root problem in our hearts. And so we ask the question, is Jesus this Savior King? Will Jesus deal with the problem 
the root of sin and sickness in all of us? Does He sympathize with us in our weakness? Does He have the power to reverse the curse? And I believe that we will find He does. And He displays that power in this account, these accounts in Matthew chapter 8. So let's get into the first account. Matthew 8, verse 1. When He came down from the mountain, great crowds followed Him. Now, keep in the back of your mind as you're trying to imagine this narrative that Jesus is being followed. This is, these are healings performed in public. Okay, So there's public verification that these things are happening. Just remember, as he interacts personally with these individuals, there is a crowd around him watching, listening, observing. They may be there for the wrong reasons, but they're there. They're eyewitnesses. And so he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and it says this, and behold, a leper came to him. The first point in your outline is the question, is he willing? Is he willing? And we're going to see that he is willing in the account of the leper. Is he willing? Now behold, a leper came to him. Leprosy is the illness, the disease that we're dealing with in this account. And it is a gruesome disease. It is a grotesque disease, uh, known today as Hansen's disease. Not as popular, not as prevalent, but still around, still around even today. I'd like you to picture this man as he comes up to Jesus. In order to really picture him, you need to understand the disease. You need to understand what he looked like. And so I I pulled this great paragraph from one of my commentaries. Most of it was penned by a Christian missionary. His name is Dr. L.S. Huizenga. And this medical missionary dealt with actual cases of leprosy as he he did missions around the world. So he knows what he's talking about. And he's going to describe to us the nature and appearance of leprosy. And I want us to see, imagine in our mind, a man approaching Jesus looking like this. I've pulled this from William Hendrickson's commentary on Matthew. It says this, The disease, which we today call leprosy, generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. In fact, the affliction is called leprosy because the Greek word lepos means scale. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to lack of blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swelling so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off and are absorbed. Toes affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes come out. And by this time, one can obviously see that this person is a leper. By a touch of the finger, you can feel it too. One can even smell it. For a leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, In view of the fact that the disease-producing agent attacks the larynx, the leper's voice becomes hoarse, 
And you can now not only feel, see, and smell the leper, but you can hear it in his voice. And if you stay for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. All the senses are engaged in the detection of a leper. Can you picture the man that approaches Jesus? Charles Spurgeon calls him a poor and pitiful creature. Marred, deformed, broken, obviously. It's a brutal and grotesque disease, obviously with pain. But not beyond the pain of it, there is the shame of leprosy. We need to talk about the law in the leper. There is a clear law given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, Leviticus 13, on how to deal with leprosy. According to the law, they were pronounced unclean, which didn't just mean community shame, but they were ostracized from worship. They were ostracized and removed and forbidden from entering the place of worship, the tabernacle at the time. Obviously, that meant that further in the Old Testament history, as the temple was built and the temple was here in Jesus' day, they were forbidden from temple grounds. They were cast out of temple grounds, and even furthermore, out of the community, they were ostracized to camps outside the city gate, where they would stay there and fester, and their disease would only get worse. Lepers were called to mar their clothing, to let out their hair, And when they walked in public, they were to cover their mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean, so that everybody was warned of their presence. The shame of leprosy was almost worse than the pain of it. This man likely lived in the shadows. I mean, even the act, think about, of this man coming in public to kneel down before Jesus was strange. You can imagine not only the the marring of his face, his repulsive state, but you can see the disgusted looks and hear the gasps of the crowd as this leper comes close. Close enough to where Jesus can touch him or he can touch Jesus. This is a striking scene. Another Christian doctor and missionary, E.R. Kellersberg, writes this. He interacted with other lepers around the world. He said, there's one fact that makes leprosy different from all other diseases. And that's the social stigma connected to it. He says, this mark of infamy and disgrace, this sets its victims apart from all other people. I have found this to be universally true across culture and society as I've traveled around the world and tried to ferret out these unfortunate people from their hiding places. Can you picture it? The desperation of this man. The marring of his face. I wonder if even you feel a a pinch of conviction because you're thinking about people you've seen on the street that are grotesque looking and you've tried to avoid them. You've moved maybe out of their way to not have to interact with a person that looks like this. What's Jesus going to do with this man? I'll tell you what the rest of society would do. I already told you. Get out of here. You're not welcome here. You are unclean, unclean. Under the law of God, 
Get out. Is that what we see Jesus do here? This man's request is striking. Look at it. Verse 2. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice, this isn't a question about Jesus' ability. This man knew Jesus could heal him. This is a question of Jesus' willingness. Thales, do you want to heal me? Are you willing? That's what the man's asking. The leper is asking if he might, Jesus might find it in his heart to have pity on him, to show compassion. I know you're able, Lord, but are you willing to heal and take pity on a poor leper like me, a disgrace to society? You know, I, many of us poor sinners wonder the same thing, don't we? Does God pity me? Does God care? Whatever I'm going through, whether I've lost a loved one, whether I'm really sick and bedridden, or I'm just going through these thoughts and these doubts in my own heart, does God even care? Does He take pity on a poor sinner like me? Does God care that my life's falling apart, that I'm desperate, that I'm poor and needy, I'm weak and wounded, I'm sick and sore, I've made such a mess of my life, I'm so dirty, I'm so unclean, I'm so depraved. Is He willing? We've, we who know Christ have all been here. We've all been in this desperate place because the sinner who has his eyes open understands and realizes, I'm not much different than the leper. Maybe on the outside, I'm clean, but on the inside, I'm full of leprosy. I'm full of sin. I'm just as dirty. I'm just as depraved. And the question is, is he willing? Will I find compassion in the heart of Christ? Matthew 8.3, read this with me. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. This would have caused more gasp than the reality of the leper coming close to him. The fact that Jesus touches this man is astonishing. Would have caused the crowds to go, <gasps> you know what Mark's account tells us? Mark's account tells us, moved with compassion, he stretches out his hand and touches him. Compassion moves him. He's not moved by duty. He's not moved by habit. He's not moved by external pressure. In fact, external pressure is telling him, don't touch that man, you will become unclean. But compassion moves him. Compassion moves the arm of God. And it always has for the salvation of His people. Do you know what was in the heart of God when He looked upon the people of Israel and their poor and pitiful slaves in Egypt? The text says in Exodus that moved with pity, moved with compassion, He saves them by His servant Moses. It was compassion that kept His hand from destroying them when they whined and complained in the wilderness. It was compassion that caused Him to raise up judges 
to rule over them and to save them from their enemy. It was compassion that kept him to his promises when the entire nation rebelled and gave themselves to idolatry. And it was compassion that sent his beloved son from the glorious throne of heaven to take the form of a man, a slave, and serve and save his people. Why does God move to men? Why would God touch men? Because he's compassionate. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? You need to recognize that touching the leper would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. He touches him, not for any personal benefit, but he touches him at a great cost. And his compassionate touch is followed by compassionate words. Look at the text. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touches him. And remember what the leper asked. Thales, are you willing? And what does Jesus say? He says, Thalo, I will. I'm willing. Be clean. In other words, I want to. I desire to heal you. Jesus said in Matthew 9.13, I desire mercy. Oh, he is the compassionate king. He is a compassionate king, merciful and gracious, gentle and lowly of heart, one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's not a king who removes himself from the peasantry. He's a king who moves to them and acts on their behalf and and removes their pain. He is the physician that came down for the sick, The Savior who came down for the sinner, compassion bleeds out of the heart of Jesus Christ. There is nobody that rivals Him in sympathy and compassion and mercy. And not just His touch and His words in this instance, but His entire life said, I am willing. And His death said, I am willing. I want to. I desire mercy. Oh, what a wonderful truth to see the heart of God opened in this account for this poor man, this poor and pitiful creature, the leper. A couple of questions that I ask myself as I go through this account. Is my heart like Christ for people like this? Do I have the heart of Christ? Do I bleed compassion and mercy for those who are struggling? For those who are in pain, for those less fortunate than me, as a Christ follower, shouldn't I emulate this compassion and this mercy in my life? I wonder if you ask the same question. How can you emulate the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ that you see in this account? And you know what? For some of you, it's really hard to receive the unconditional, unreserved compassion of God. This truth is hard for you. You press up against it. Some protect themselves from getting to the point of desperation. They won't humble themselves and honestly admit that they need God's compassion. The offer's on the table and many walk away because they think they can handle it on their own. They don't need anybody's pity, much less God's. Hey, tough guy. Drop the persona. 
you desperately need the compassion and mercy of God. You are desperate and sick in your sins. You may look on the outside like you have your whole life together, but inside it's falling apart without God. Every single one of us needs the mercy and compassion of Christ. Allow those walls to come down, those walls of pride, and embrace Christ for His unconditional, unreserved offer of compassion and mercy on you. Oh, we're no better than this leper. We need God's salvation, the salvation that only He can provide for us. If you're going through your life thinking that you can work it out, that you've got it all together, that you can work out your own salvation, earn your own way to heaven, you're further from God than this leper who was declared ceremonially unclean. I need that rebuke. Too often I try to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and figure I can work this Christian life out on my own and forget that I desperately need God. I'm desperate just like this leper, and I need his compassion. I need his mercy upon me in my life. Some of you, though, you know you are in pain physically. You are in pain spiritually. And sometimes you wonder amidst the pain if God really cares, if God's listening, if he's near to you. Psalm 34 says, God is near to the brokenhearted. You need to look to Jesus at this moment in your life. Because let me ask you, is there anyone else you'd rather have weeping with you? Is there anyone else you'd rather have sitting next to you in the hospital bed? Is there anyone else that you would rather have standing next to you in the cemetery? There's no one more compassionate, more sympathetic than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a king who sympathizes, a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Will you embrace him? Will you receive him? as the unconditional, merciful Savior that He is. Of course, not only is He willing, but He's able. He's able. Matthew 8, 4, He says, I will be clean. And as fast as those words escape His lips, immediately the leprosy was cleansed. This is an undeniable miracle with public witness. All vi visible symptoms of leprosy are immediately gone. People are seeing this happen before their eyes. The spots gone. The body reforming its shape. The eyes regain their brows and lashes. The skin returns its color and texture. The fingers and the toes are repaired and they're replaced. The voice is restored. The disease is gone. And he is made clean, holy, outstanding. At this time, again, this is an incurable disease. This is power that no other man has. Jesus shows it in full display. He has power over sickness and disease. And notice that the leper's disease doesn't touch or infect Jesus' holiness. Jesus' holiness touches and affects the disease. I'm reminded of the scene in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah enters the throne room of God. And he's overwhelmed at this holy sight, the king on the throne in heaven. Holy, 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 the seraphim are declaring. And Isaiah falls to his face like a dead man and says, Woe is me, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips surrounded by an unclean people. And what does God do? 
He sends his angel with the coal. And the coal does what? Touches the lips of Isaiah and he declares him clean. Here's yet another picture of God's holiness cleansing us of our sin. You know, sometimes I think about, you think about God's holiness like it's, a, like it's a white canvas, you know, that we can't get any paint on. You know, God's holiness is something that we've got to stay away from because we're dirty and filthy and we might infect Him. No, 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 that's not the holiness of God. Holiness of God is more like a bright light that if you enter its presence and He's merciful on you, it cleanses you. It washes you white as snow. It takes the spots out of you. You don't put spots on Him. He takes the spots out of you. And so this leper is cleansed by holy God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. This is extraordinary power. And we're going to see further displays of His power as we go through this account. The power of Christ's words to heal. In this account, it's His touch and His words. In the next account, we're going to see Him just say the word. And the servant is healed. But I don't want us to pass over this statement in chapter 4. Sorry, verse 4. We're not going backwards, forwards. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now the question comes up in, in other accounts too. Why does Jesus forbid these people from telling like people around them? Obviously, this was a public miracle. He did it in front of the crowds. Okay, but why does he prevent these people who are healed from going out and telling more people? You're going to see this come up several times through the gospel. There are a variety of reasons given. Some commentators say that Jesus didn't want to draw unnecessary attention to himself at the beginning of his ministry. Um, he didn't want to overwhelm the crowds. The crowds were overwhelming. He didn't want more. But I think that Jesus is rushing this man to see the priest. I think he wants this man to see the priest before anyone else. Why? Because in Leviticus 14, it was only the priest, according to the ceremonial law, that could declare him clean. And so Jesus rushes to honor the ceremonial law. To have this man, hey, go see the priest before anyone else because he's the only one that can declare you clean. By the way, that declaration had massive implications for his life. He needed that declaration, that certificate, if you will, in order to enter back into the community and in order to walk onto temple grounds and worship. That de declaration from the priest was most important. Most important for this man's restoration into worship and society. Now, I don't want to spend time going through Leviticus 14 and the ceremonial process of cleansing. It does involve some essential oils, okay? Uh, for some of you ladies, that is a very interesting thing. But um, no, it's, it's the oil of cedar. Uh, I don't know if you have that in one of your little flasks at home, but very helpful for declaring you ceremonially clean after leprosy. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not advocating for that, but it's, it's, a, it's quite a process. In fact, they were supposed to kill one, two birds offered, and, and one bird had to be killed, and the, the blood of that bird into a goblet, and, and you take this other bird and you dip it into that bird's blood, and it's, it's kind of crazy. But all of it had this purpose. The ceremonial law 
had a purpose. It wasn't just a bunch of hoops to jump through for the sake of jumping through hoops. God has a purpose behind this law, and the purpose is to emphasize His holiness. Okay, You can't just walk into the presence of God casually without recognizing His holiness, without a reverence for Him. He is holy. He is set apart and morally pure. No man can waltz into His presence. No man can just you know, step onto hollowed temple grounds, much less a diseased and unclean leper. You need to understand that this man, in his mind, he had no shot of walking into the temple again. He, he knew, my disease is incurable. I am, for the rest of my life, unclean. No chance I'm going to be able to walk into the temple grounds and worship God. Unless a miracle happens, which it did. God is holy. Any man, any man must be forgiven and cleansed to enter the temple for worship. And there was no shot of this man doing it on his own. So here's what Jesus does. This is amazing. God is holy, right? Holy God steps down. He becomes a man. Walks out of the Holy of Holies through the inner courts, past the veil, the curtain that divided common man from the presence of God. Walks out through the outer courts and the dividing wall that separated Gentile from Jew. And walks even further through the community and the city. Walks outside the city gates. Goes to the camp of the leper and touches him and cleanses him. What a wonderful gospel illusion, isn't it? What a wonderful point to the gospel. That God condescended and became a man to save filthy, wretchful sinners just like you and I. We could not ascend to the temple. In fact, Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4 is a great cross-reference for this. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, that's unfortunate for us on our own because we can't clean our hands. We can't clean our heart. We're filthy sinners. Absolutely unable. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And so what did Jesus do? He came down to us. He condescended, became a man, became a perfect man who lived a perfect life and died on the cross being a perfect substitute to take upon the penalty of sin upon Himself and He suffered under the wrath of God. In exchange, He gives those who believe in Him His perfection, His purity, His righteousness, so that you and I, though filthy sinners, by our own doing, can be declared righteous by Christ's doing. Clean. Purified. From the heart. Oh, this is not just a story about a physical healing. This physical healing points to a greater spiritual healing. Jesus didn't come to only make lepers clean. He came to clean hearts. To make hearts pure. To make you and I, sinners, pure and righteous before God. And He accomplished that through His life, death, and resurrection. 
These are glorious gospel realities, and I want to encourage you today, if you have not received Christ by faith, if you not entrusted yourself to Jesus alone, the only one who can cleanse you, the only one who can take away and deal with your sin, do so today. The compassionate offer of God is on the table. Do not reject Him because you think you're good enough. Don't reject Him because you think, I'm unworthy or I'm too dirty. Or why would God have pity on me? He does. Receive his offer of salvation by faith. Repent from your sins and trust in Christ alone today. The compassionate hand of God reaches out to touch your heart. Allow him to do so. Humble yourself before God and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And may we go out as Christians and declare to the world we worship a compassionate God. A God ready to heal you of your sinful wounds, a God ready to take your pain away, to show you mercy. And though in this life you may not have all your physical aches and pains taken away, you may suffer under a disease, a physical ailment. But if you're in Christ, know this, your momentary light affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory. You could suffer for a little while trusting in Christ and he will eventually take all that pain and sickness away. Only in Christ, only in Christ will this be true. He is willing. He is. Is He able? What are the extents of Christ's power? Well, come back next week as we go through the next story of healing. The healing of the centurion's servant. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is amazing to dwell on your compassion, your pity. It is undeserved. We don't deserve your compassion, God. We don't deserve your pity. We've not earned it. We've given you all the more reason to not give it because we sin and we've all rebelled against you. We've all fallen short of your perfect standard. And in our sin, it's not just breaking the law, but we've broken your heart. We've rebelled against you, God, in our sins. And yet, in your mercy, because of your compassion, you move to save us through sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to endure the life of a despised and rejected man, but to do so perfectly and die as our substitute on the cross and conquer the ultimate, ultimate reality, conquer sin and death through His resurrection and secure our future resurrection in Him if we believe. I pray for the person here who is resistant to the compassion of God. Maybe it's God probably because of their pride, probably because they're stubborn in their sins. I pray that you would knock down those walls by your Spirit, that they would receive Christ today. I pray for us who... Sometimes revert back to prideful stubbornness, God, and and sometimes revert back to living out our salvation by our own effort and really gritting our teeth, pulling up our bootstraps and doing it ourselves. Remind us, God, of our depravity, our inability, and help us to trust you, compassionate God. Remind us through prayer that we would lean on the throne of grace, that we would find mercy and compassion in our time of need. 
I pray for those out there spiritually and even physically hurting, that in their time of uh, suffering and in this momentary affliction, that they would trust you, God, the God over disease, to relieve them according to your will. If not in this life, God, in the life to come, you surely will. Help them to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.